week of December 22nd, 2017. This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast Week in Review. And this week we are doing a year in review, looking back at some of the most important stories that have affected us here in the state and across the nation. And we will also briefly discuss the passage of the GOP tax bill. I am Stephen Cox, your host. I am joined this week by the founder of Indivisible Washington's 8th District, Chris Petzold. Hello, Chris. Hi, it's been a doozy of a year, huh? Yeah, we'll get to that, yeah. And also uh, by Democratic Chair of Washington's 8th Congressional District, Joshua Troopin. Hello, Josh. How are you? I'm fine. I was expecting to wake up to snow this morning. All accounts were that, uh, in Issaquah anyway, that we were going to get snow. You are in North Bend. Are you having any snow your way? We, I am looking out the window right now at a few large flakes coming down, but... It's the typical North Bend snow where it's kind of mixed with three or four other types of liquid on the way down. Uh, there's a light coating. All right. Well, I'm sure the Eskimos have a word for that, you know, <laughs> as, as I am told, or so, so the lore goes. Pacific Northwest. Yeah, exactly. This is a Pacific Northwest winter. All right. So uh, as I mentioned, we will be talking about each of your five most consequential stories for 2017, uh, which is our... I guess it's our own little version of a top 10. Uh, But first, regrettably, we should probably briefly discuss a couple of pieces of business. Uh, First, the passage of the GOP tax bill into law. Uh, On Wednesday, the bill made it through both chambers. It it had to be voted again on in the House because of three violations of the Byrd rule that made it into the Senate version, which I, I think speaks to the rush job that this thing really was. And then on Friday, the bill was officially signed into law by Trump. Uh, Ezra Levin of Indivisible tweeted that he is resistant to join what is basically a chorus of commentators who are saying that this is technically a win for Democrats because they can use this bill to defeat Republicans in 2018. And he is far more focused on what will likely be the real human cost of what is essentially an enormous giveaway to corporations and the 1%. Uh, And so to focus more on how this thing is going to hurt poor people and working families, uh, how it's going to kick some 13 million people off their health care. Chris, let's start with you. What's generally your take on the passage of this bill, which uh, is, as of today, officially law? Yeah, it's definitely a loss for our movement. Um, We've been I mean, personally, in in our area, we've been working hard um, to stop this for two over two months now, and uh, so yeah, it's a it's a big sense of loss, um, a big sense of worry on behalf of all the people who will be hurt by this, um, both by the healthcare thing and in the ways that we can't yet calculate financially. Uh, so yeah, it's a big loss. I think that we just need to acknowledge that and sort of sit with it for a while and kind of move through, you know, what we're feeling there. And then, yeah, I'm not focusing on it being a win for the Dems in 2018, but I have hope that that will be the outcome. Yeah, I do too. And I kind of want to just traipse into the politics of this just a little bit by acknowledging that this is an enormously unpopular piece of legislation, right? I mean, even Trump supporters in large numbers did not like this bill. Uh, But a lot of the pain that it will cause 
probably won't kick in until after 2018, and that is by design. So uh, the Republicans are gambling that passing this bill won't necessarily hurt them in next year's election. Um, Josh, any thoughts on that? What sort of fallout are you expecting from this in 2018? Well, first of all, you know, I'm thrilled about this tax plan because finally, finally, I get to file my taxes on a postcard, right? <laughs> yes, of, just like well, Paul Ryan said. Right? Yeah. Instead well, of on the back of know. an IHOP menu. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's been heartwarming to see bosses all across the land you know, rushing to shove handfuls of cash into the pockets of grateful employees already. <laughs> Did you guys see that that, that meeting with uh, a, a group of CEOs who were asked, please raise your hand if you are going yep. to take the tax cut and give it to employees and not basically line the pockets of shareholders? And I think one person in an audience of hundreds raised their hand. So there, yeah. that, that, that tells yep. you what, what you it, need to It know. does not make sense for them to give it to employees unless they are compelled to in some way. But, you know, even leaving aside the particulars of the tax bill, it's just so badly planned. You know, you pass something the last week and a half of December that's supposed to take effect in January of next year. You know, HR departments don't know how to withhold taxes properly. You know, it's all a fiasco. And we thought Trump is not going to sign it until January because it, you know, busts the deficit so badly that it's going to trigger automatic cuts to Medicare. Yeah, why um, did he sign it? I had heard the same thing. So why do we suppose he went ahead and signed it today? I think the passage of the continuing resolution put in some stuff about blocking the PAYGO. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, telling someone you get $1,000, $2,000 back from the tax bill sounds great, but that's going to be spread out into 26 paychecks. So people might see, you know, under $100 of a difference. And there aren't real positive benefits that I see to most workers that are going to boost Republican prospects going into 2018. No, everyone still hates Trump. Voter engagement is up even in off off year special elections. On the other hand, don't overestimate the attention span of the voters. Because if you remember back in 2013, Ted Cruz basically shut the government down and everyone said, oh, now they're really going to be punished for this. And in 2014, the Republicans took the Senate over. I think that this is will be just maybe one on a stack of fresh outrages in the next year. We've got <sighs> we've got almost a year ahead. And then, you know, the economy, when it starts to corkscrew into the ground in 2019 and 2020, faster than you can say Bitcoin, you know, they'll have the 2020 elections <laughs> to worry about still. You're just a ray of joy today, Josh. (laughs) Yes, you are. You're bringing the holiday cheer, brother. Happy holidays, everyone. Yeah, and, and actually, just to kind of button what you were saying, you know, when George Bush passed his tax cuts, uh, people did get a check in the mail and then very quickly forgot about it, and his numbers tanked, and uh, it didn't really help them politically. So if history is any lesson, well, we'll see. Um, and, of course, the other story is that a continuing resolution, uh, as Chris mentioned, funding the government uh, also passed on Thursday. And this was notable because – While many Democrats in both the House and the Senate pledged to vote against it unless the GOP agreed to fund CHIP and enshrine DACA into law, the GOP 
did neither of those things. And yet enough Democrats voted for the measure anyway. And the Republicans walked away this year, at the end of this year, with both a tax bill they wanted and a government funding package that they wanted without having to give anything away. Uh, I, I should mention that both of our senators, Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell, did vote against the CR. Uh, any thoughts, Chris, on why other Democrats did it? Uh, it? Is it because they're afraid of getting blamed if the government were to shut down? Is it is it because and I, I know this sounds reductive, but it's it's real. Democrats wanted to get out of town for the holidays. I mean, what, what do you make of it? I hope it's not that. Um, but I, I think that there are real ramifications to shutting down the government. And um, maybe some people just couldn't. Do it. Um, and uh, it's a serious thing. I am, I am deeply disappointed that they didn't stand up for the dreamers and for the children who are not going to have health care. Um, but all I can say is that uh, I think they were worried about doing that. It, it had the last time it happened, it had massive implications on the agencies who uh, were shut down and it took a long time to recover from that. And some of them actually never did. So uh, maybe that was part of the calculation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really did cause a lot of damage last time around. Well, Josh, I'll turn to you. What do you make of the Democrats not holding the line on things like CHIP and DACA? Uh, one theory would be that uh, the ones voting for the CR were in – they're going to be up for re-election in 2018 in states that Trump won. But I should note that Sherrod Brown of Ohio, Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, and Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin all voted for it. Why did the others defect in your opinion? I, I think that you know, it's tough being in the minority in Congress no matter what. I think that – um, some of the Democrats probably did their own internal calculations and figured that they're going to lose the fight either ways. And the best they were going to be able to get is perhaps, you know, the partial funding of CHIP that was in there instead of nothing at all, plus a shutdown. Um, but again, this shows really that when we're talking about keeping pressure on Congress, it's not always just Republicans. Uh, In order to get what you want, in order to get to progressive goals, you need to remind people in Congress of who is voting for them. And also, you know, what every Democrat needs to internalize is that the word of the GOP and the word of Trump is worthless. Susan Collins uh, needs to learn that as well. But, you know, there's no such thing as a deal until it's written down and voted on. And there are Republicans in, co- in Congress whose only concern is literally to make sure the military gets funded. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one Republican from Texas who said, we've got to quit using the military as a political pawn. And this is on the same day that Trump pointed to a couple of companies that announced they were giving out bonuses thanks to the tax plan. So we really need to... I, I would I would rather use the military as a pawn than the lives of millions of workers. But here, here. Yeah. their mileage may vary, but mine does not. Well, I, one of the things that I think many people listening are hoping is that the Democrats are going to grow a spine and become real fighters in 2018. And we will see if that uh, if that happens. But all right, everybody. So as I say, this is our final show of 2017. So we have decided to do a year in review. So the way that it will work is this. Each of you has selected your top five stories of the year that you would like to discuss. 
us, and so we'll just go in order. Uh, it's it's essentially going to be a uh, David Letterman style top ten, uh, though in reality it's it's kind of more of a uh, double top five, but it'll work out. So, Josh, we will uh, we'll start with you. Uh, your number five is the changing landscape on the east side. Uh, I figure we saw that play out pretty starkly in the Moncadengra victory. Yes, that, absolutely. And you know, Washington really has two east sides. So, what we consider to be the east side is basically Kirkland, Bellevue, Redmond, the area between Lake Washington and Snoqualmie Pass. Whereas people on the dry side of the mountains, consider that their sure. east side. But focusing on the near Seattle east side, um, it has been changing for a, a while now. It used to be much more conservative. Uh, we've seen a much higher concentration of relatively well-to-do tech workers. Mm-hmm. And this is the area mostly defined by four legislative districts, which are the 41st, 45th, 48th, and 5th. Um, And what we saw just this past year was a special election where Moncadingra won by almost 11 points. Um, And that election was triggered by the untimely passing of Andy Hill uh, a year ago. Um, So back in 2014, Andy won the district by about five and a half points. So we saw a 16 and a half point swing in the 45th. Um, To me, I think part of the reason is that it was the power of incumbency. And if you're relatively well liked, if you don't, you know, go off the rails, you tend to do better than the area as a whole. But Manka's victory really extended what's turning into a fairly nice blue wall over here. Uh, these four districts have 12 total state legislature leg, legislators. Ten of them are Democrats. Uh, in the 48th, there was not even a Republican challenger for two seats in the general. They had two special elections, and the second-place finisher was a libertarian in both of them. So now we have two Republican-held seats left on the east side. Both of them are in the fifth legislative district in the state legislature. Just four, five years ago, we didn't even have an opponent against Jay Rodney. But last year, the Democrats were within a couple thousand votes for each of those two seats. And that was Darcy Berner and Jason Ritchie. And that was before everything that's happened over the past year. So we are trending blue, and that's extending further out from Seattle, even though the old saying was you can see all the Democrats in the state from the top of the Space Needle. Uh, I think we're still going into 2018 with a real air of hope statewide in extending our um, control of at least the state legislature. Yeah, well, and, and it does kind of make you wonder. You, you talked about that 11-point differential between Monkey Ingram and her opponent, Jin Young Lee England. Um, how much of that do you ascribe to the Trump effect? Well, uh, Jin Young never did really um, back off of Trump. I think that if you look at the other races in the 45th, um, overall, they have been turning more blue with or without Trump. And I think mm. that Trump is going Trump will give us a few more points. Um, but if you look at someone like Dave Reichert, our old friend, uh, he Who we'll um, get to in a second. We'll be getting. Yeah. <laughs> We're coming up on Dave, but um, he did pretty well 
in 2016, even though Trump was on the ticket with him. And he did about the same as he has done in past races. And that has to do with incumbency. And once you have a seat, it's a lot easier to keep it than to get it. So we are on the cusp of getting a few more, in my opinion. Here, here. Yes. I, I think the I think Manka's race, uh, the win was at least due in part to the Trump effect, because I know that there were quite a few uh, folk activists, folks in Indivisible who are working really hard for her. And, you know, I, I, for one, had a personal conversation and turned out a voter for her from, you know, someone from work. And it just goes on and on from there where we wouldn't have had these people involved in that race in years past. Never. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of national trends. And this was a race that that people across the country were watching. And of course, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, uh, in the words of Tina Podlodowski, we did create our big, beautiful blue wall along with Oregon and California. So, yeah. And I do think that that, I think that's part of the Trump effect. Um, So, Chris, your number five is the role that Attorney General Bob Ferguson has played in the fight against Trump this year. He has filed suit five times, uh, everything uh, from filing suit against the Muslim ban to his recent filing against the administration over the FCC reversing net neutrality. He has emerged as uh, quite a a star in the state and and actually nationally, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. And, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I'm not sure I can recall uh, the name of a previous attorney general Mm -hmm. off the top of my head. Um, And so, you know, I think it's just amazing um, all the work that he has done. Um, I read today that he made Time's top 100 list. Really? I did not know that. Wow. He filed the first lawsuit against Trump um, in reaction, you know, to the Muslim ban. And, you know, that was just such a dark time um, right after the inauguration. And I think he just spoke for all of us when he was just saying, you know, this is not our country. This is not who we are. And, you know, that was when we were all like in shock and horror and not yet habituated to the Trump you know, shock doctrine, unfortunately, which is, I think, happening. Um, And I just think he's an amazing person who has sort of uh, restored my faith in the judiciary, in our system, in our democracy. I feel that, you know, he, you know, at least that pillar of government is standing on principle. And personally, I think he's just a really cool guy. He's a great speaker. I happened to meet him at our rally that we did when um, Betsy DeVos was here visiting in Bellevue. Um, And I kind of had a chance to uh, hold him aside and introduce myself. And he thanked me for all the work that we've been doing here. And I, of course, thanked him for all of his work. And um, someone in our group, Kayla, had told me just before that that he was her spirit animal. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I mentioned that to Bob Ferguson, and he actually blushed. He's so just so great guy. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's a good story. I know. Yeah. So he's amazing. Very proud. And absolutely. And I, I he as well as Jay Inslee uh, make me feel good about living in a, a state like Washington during these ugly things that have been happening over the last year. So, yeah. All right, Josh, your number four. Uh, you have the, as I mentioned, the retirement of Eighth District Congressman Dave Reichert. Reichert, of course, announced in September that he will be retiring from Congress at the end of this term. Um, 
Chris, I, I figure you'll have some things that you want to say about this as well. But uh, Josh, you first. Uh, how much of a game changer was this? Well, yeah, I mentioned the power of personal popularity, talking about the East Side, and Reichert has been coasting off that same dynamic for years. You know, he kind of kept his head down, didn't do anything outrageous, popped up with lip service to environmental causes once in a while, seemed nice enough. But we also saw that in the election results. So it didn't matter who we ran against him, whether we went hard or whether we went light. He usually had about a 60-40 edge in the 8th CD, even when Obama and Clinton were winning it. Um, but what we've seen is grassroots groups like Indivisible start to change the equation on some of these useless meat sacks that we have in Congress. <laughs> and yeah, this is great. I mean, people are seeing that being a nice guy doesn't necessarily mean personal likability anymore. Who you are in Congress should be defined by what you vote for. And if you talk about how you're dedicated to protecting natural resources, but then vote for this tax bill, that doesn't add up. You're not a good person for our and, and you're referring to the portion of the tax bill that will allow drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, something that Record said that he didn't want and he said that he wouldn't support, and yet he voted for the bill anyway. Yeah. Right. But, you know, how, how does Mr. Nice Guy handle things? He doesn't stand up and face voters. He gets peevish and decides to quit because his nice, cushy job blew up when – People like Indivisible started demanding answers. So now we've got Dino Rossi stepping up. And Can we um, just start calling him four-time loser Dino Rossi like Rich Smith has been doing in The Stranger? I think that's a great way for us to refer to him. Or, or Dino Rossi. Nice! Um, it, so back in 2010, his last you know, reporting cycle, he owned between $4.3 and $15 million in real estate holdings. So that was back in 2010. And that would have made him one of the 10 biggest congressional beneficiaries of this self-dealing real estate pass-through tax cut that Trump is making so much money from and Corker is making money from. This is the thing they slipped in at the last moment to get Corker's vote when he was like, what? I didn't see that at all. So it's more of the same, except if Dino should unfortunately make it to Congress, then uh, I see even more of this kind of self-dealing like we are seeing with the Republicans now. Yeah. You know, actually, you mentioned Indivisible, and Chris, I'm going to hand the mic to you in just a second, but I do want to kind of mention something that I think is very funny, and that is shortly before Reichert announced his retirement, he was at a community uh, center in Auburn, and this is one of the rare times where we knew, oh, he's going to be there. And so you put together, you helped put together a protest against him. One of the people standing there was my mom, my sweet 74-year-old mom holding a sign. And I, apparently as he passed by, he just looked crestfallen. He's like, I can't believe that this – and my mom, of course, was incredibly polite. I like to think absolutely not only was Indivisible uh, responsible for uh, his decision to retire. I also like to think that my mom played a personal hand in it. So <laughs> so go, Jan Cox. Uh, I'm pretty sure that your mom did bring down Dave Riker, uh, <laughs> well, so, there, so, there you go, yeah. Mom. We got it on the record. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Chris, do talk generally about Indivisible's role in all of this. Yeah, so uh, he, when I created this group, he was uh, the main focal point. I realized that we had an opportunity to 
do something here in the 8th District with our Republican Congress uh, men. And uh, so our strategy was to hold him accountable. Um, as Josh mentioned, he's sort of been flying under the radar for his six terms in office. Is that right? And we just decided he wasn't going to be able to do that anymore. And we started holding him accountable. Um, and yeah, I'm taking some of the credit on behalf of all of the activists here in the 8th, um, the constituents here in the 8th. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that event that you mentioned was really pivotal, I think. Um, the timing couldn't have been closer to his announcement and um i think he just realized that he he wasn't going to be able to hide from us anymore and uh i re- i remember a very important meeting in my mind through this whole fight was when i was meeting with him personally um in the spring i think april and he was lamenting about how during the tea party days they were after him um and he said and i quote but it was nothing like this and so, yeah, yep, we did it. Yeah, all right, cool. I like it. Uh, so, Chris, uh, let's stick with you. Your number four was uh, Trump pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accords in June. Uh, this one's a no-brainer for its place on the list. But talk about some of the ramifications here. This was pretty much a giant middle finger to the entire planet. <laughs> yeah. You know, when Trump was elected, I had all of these fears um, about everything I care about becoming, you know, under attack. And this was really a double header, um, the environment and our standing in the world you know, mm-hmm. as America. And, you know, as the second largest producer of greenhouse gases, you know, us withdrawing is shameful. Um, and, you know, it really it didn't need to happen. You know, it was a non-binding diplomatic agreement. You mentioned it's a middle finger. I was thinking this was like a global pinky swear to cut emissions, you know, Um, and it was through diplomatic pressure and, you know, peer pressure, basically, that we were all going to do this. But of course, Trump couldn't leave anything in place that was accomplished under Obama. And so it was part of that. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we had Uh, committed to cutting emissions by 25% of the 2005 levels by the year 2025. And, you know, this is just a a national embarrassment. It's, you know, our standing in the world. So now we're America goes back on their word. Um, And so it's just so upsetting, especially in light of the fact that, you know, at the time the agreement was signed, only Nicaragua and Syria weren't part of the global climate accord and you know of course since then they've they've joined now so but (laughs) the good news in all of this is that governor Inslee and the governors of a few other states california and new york i think Mm -hmm. you know have created this u.s climate alliance and so we're we're giving a bit big middle finger back to donald trump absolutely and we're yeah we're gonna keep it going All right, Josh, your number three is the Mueller investigation. There are, of course, a number of ways that this thing could turn out. So I'll just ask you, what's your expectation of how this might ultimately go? I mean, I know the hope is impeachment in the House and convection in the Senate, but it's a very high bar, even with a hypothetical Democratic majority in both chambers. There is always a specter of Trump getting rid of Mueller also. So how do you see this thing going? Well, I think it's been really interesting to watch not only the investigation itself, but Trump's reaction to it. And yeah, I think we can all agree that being president wasn't in Trump's actual plan. He was looking to lose the race, 
claim that he was cheated and make money from it. And the last mm. thing he wanted to do is to actually have any responsibility like this. So now special prosecutor shows up. He's actually doing some legwork. And the real panic has started to hit as uh, Mueller gets closer to Trump's financial dealings. So, you know, as a disclaimer, I am from New York, and we've all known what a cheap fraud Trump is for decades since the 1980s. Yeah, I lived in New York, too, and he is not a popular guy there. Now he's a swindler. He's used rich people tricks to stay one step ahead of the game, and now he's in a corner. And he's trying to fight back like he's in a corner. He's faced with someone that he can't fire, and he's faced with someone who won't take orders to wrap it up or to stay away from his bank account. So... He's really grasping at straws now, like you know, their claims last week that it was illegal to obtain official email from the GAO. Um, as we see with a lot of investigations like this, you know, that panic is what could end up triggering more illegal activities like mm. obstruction of justice. Um, at the same time, we still have you know drips and drabs of information. So I think all we can do is kind of let this keep taking its course and not get wrapped up with speculation to the detriment of focusing on what's going on with legislation and the judiciary every day. Um, Every time we're talking about it, uh, you know, it's interesting, but we don't want to let Trump grab news cycles to hide what's happening over in Congress. Absolutely. And also, you know, I'm glad that you bring that up because it has occurred to me and it's been talked about by a number of people whose opinions I very much respect that we can't count on this. I mean, as lovely as it would be for Mueller to give all of his findings to the House and for them to impeach, uh, it's still then a two-thirds vote in the Senate and it's a very high bar. So I think the place where we put all of our efforts now is in putting one or both chambers back in Democratic control and yeah. then in 2020 vote them out. Uh, Chris, I, I hear you agreeing with me on this. Yeah, I don't. I. It's so sad. I don't really have an expectation that the Republican controlled Congress would actually even take up impeachment anymore, even if um, Mueller finds like a smoking gun. Um, And, you know, I really have hope that Mueller will find something and that we can take the House in 2018 and that those processes can be started. I think he's another, like Inslee and Ferguson, another sign of hope for our democracy um, standing up. I, I wasn't a huge Comey fan, but on the day that Trump fired him, I was at work and I literally wanted to climb on the roof somehow and start yelling about it. Yeah, <laughs> I know it yeah, sounds like I'm crazy. Um, um, no, but, and no, I, not I at all. No, I felt the same could, way. It could have been like a career limiting move on my part. So I'm glad <laughs> I didn't do it. Um, and I just want to remind everyone that we're on standby if Mueller is fired. Um, and you can text the word alert to 668-366 to get notified um, if this happens and, or go to Trump is not above the law dot org. Um, and this is a move on dot org uh, organized mass rally if this happens all around the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think it's important to put that out there. And I will put the link uh, to that, to both of those sites on the SoundCloud page and also on the website. All right, Chris, uh, continuing with you, your number three is the Me Too movement. And uh, we have discussed this uh, quite a bit on the show, but talk about how this has been a real game changer this year. Yeah, I... 
it's it's kind of I've been thinking about it a lot, um, and I don't think that we did enough to support women who have spoken out to share their experiences of sexual harassment and abuse in the past. I'm thinking of like Anita Hill, um, the Bill Clinton accusers, and Me Too was actually started by this woman named uh, Tarana Burke, and she had had a conversation with a child, a young girl of 13 years old. Um, This conversation happened 10 years ago. And she didn't feel like she was adequately able to, um, you know, help the child or even know really what to say. And I guess in the 10 years since, um, she has really suffered from that in Mm. in that feeling of inadequacy of how to help this child. Um, And so she just kind of posted it on Twitter when all this started and Alyssa Milano latched onto it and it exploded from there. Um, And for me, you know, it really reinforced the feeling where I was absolutely set on fire like a year ago in October when the Access Hollywood uh, tapes came out and I vowed to do everything in my power to stop Trump um, and I'm still doing it. And um, this is for all the women who have been silently suffering from rape, harassment, abuse. Um, It's for all of us women who are now realizing that those things we experienced in the past weren't okay and it's for everyone who has felt helpless to speak out you know now is our time um and for all the men out there we need you to speak out too you know trump's locker room talk is not okay he was admitting to sexual assault and we will never forget that um and so my hope is that this is a cultural cultural shift to empower women and to level the playing field basically to smash the patriarchy i'm sorry to say <laughs> no i i'm i'm perfectly fine with that because look at what a mess men have made of things um mm-hmm. but i i will just sort of follow up and ask do you see this as a movement that can potentially precipitate changes in leadership it, and i'm not even just talking about in dc although that would be ideal but also in boardrooms in hollywood that, that we might start to see more female leaders emerge as a result of this Yes, I do. Um, And just this week, you know, companies are starting to come out and say, you know, they're removing those clauses of, you know, not having to prevent uh, people from suing the company against sexual harassment lawsuits. Uh, The taxpayers are no longer going to pay for those uh, congressional lawsuits. I think this is very empowering. And I hope, like you say, it's going to lead to more women in the boardroom. I, I, you know, I'm not a man hater. I love men, but I just want, I just want women and all people to have an equal uh, seat at the table. So this is great. It's a very good outcome. It definitely is. And yeah, I I don't think the importance of it can be overstated. Uh, Josh, your number two was the Obamacare battle. Now, Obamacare is on the ropes with the mandate being repealed as part of the new tax law. Uh, But Democrats did hold the line three times on repeal. Uh, Give us your thoughts there. Well, yeah, I look at the Obamacare battle versus the uh, tax scam deal a bit. And in the end, we managed to block passage of an Obamacare repeal. And there are three things that I've really... Uh, observed from that. First of all, it sure is a lot easier to pass repeals when there's no fear of it actually being signed into law, when you're just doing it as a big statement. Um, And it's also interesting to see the fundamental tension between conservatives at the state level and at the federal level, because each of them wants to be 
the one who cuts taxes and lowers spending. But at a state level for a lot of states, they can only do that if they get more money back from the federal level. So that will always be in opposition in some way. And the third thing is that even though this bill failed, we can count on Republicans never to give up um, trying to end run that. So you know, we can never give up pointing out what they're trying to do. And you know, again, the tax uh, bill is a great example of that. You know, while they didn't directly kick people off of it, they um, el- eliminated the fines for not carrying insurance. And as a result, that will have a ripple effect where individual rates will go up. And that will probably offset any savings uh, to the middle class from the uh, slight tax cuts that they received. And you know, even with all the Republican sabotage of the ACA, um, not only what they've just done in the tax bill, but you know, eliminating outreach, taking the website down for maintenance on weekends, cutting the sign-up period in half. You know, almost 9 million people ended up signing up for the exchanges for next year. And that shows that it's still a necessary and healthy system. And you know, Washington State, being a good and kindly place, their sign-up deadline here is not until January 15th. Um, and compared with the tax bill, again, the other less is that while you know the morbidly wealthy funders of the Republican Party want to sink the ACA, what's really most important to them is getting those taxes you know, eliminated for their businesses. Um, cutting the ACA is a business opportunity, whereas uh, eliminating taxes is a more direct cash funnel for Republicans and their funders. Yeah. Well, Chris, you know, I, I know that this seems like uh, it's kind of hard to discuss it in light of the fact that the tax bill just got signed into law along with the uh, individual mandate being repealed. Um, but what about the fact that, you know, with the help of groups like Indivisible, Democrats did manage to hold the line three times on repeal of Obamacare? It was a very hard-fought and significant win for the resistance um, against Trump. Uh, We were, you know, there is no way you can say it any other way. We dragged this thing out and we finally won. And even though they did get part of their hateful agenda passed this last week with regard to health care, it's a win. It's a huge win. Yeah. All right, Chris. So your number two was the Women's March, and that happened the day after the inauguration in January. Uh, These were the largest marches in American history. The march in Seattle drew over 160,000 people. Uh, And for most of us, uh, myself included, the march really made us feel like we were not alone in our outrage. Um, Talk about the significance of the Women's March to you. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that I, I mean, I don't think anyone knew how big it was until after the fact. <laughs> um, we yeah. just all thought we were going to this thing, and um, 
And then you come to find out that marches were held on seven continents, all on all seven continents, all around the world, like an estimated five million people marched worldwide. Um, it was organized by women, but all kinds of people were there, so many men and families. Um, and I think it really galvanized and locked in the power that would sort of carry us through this difficult year. Um, it was a massive statement setting the tone as a giant you to Trump, especially in comparison to his inauguration crowd size. Sorry, mm-hmm. you're going to have to beat me. Yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll use <laughs> yeah, the Try not to use obscenities like Trump too much, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should start using the bleep for the word Trump. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, I think it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing that can't be replicated. Um, it cemented our sisterhood and history, um, and I think it will be much more historic and significant than Trump himself, believe it or not. Um, I am hearing some concerns about this um, year's marches. You know, is it going to be as big? What does that look like? Are we including everyone? Um, those are definitely concerns. Um, but I just want to hold on to what you know, this last January's spontaneous, uh, amazing, powerful moment in history that we experienced together. Um, we were part of history. Absolutely. I actually still have my pussy hat right in the drawer, right next to me there. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, so we are down to both of your number ones. And uh, yeah, let's, let's do a little drum roll here. There we go. All right. Uh, so, uh, Josh, your number one is the evident lack of the GOP's core beliefs. Uh, talk about how they've pretty much abandoned everything that they've ever stood for to become the party of Trump. Well, you know, the, the Republican Party has had several watershed moments. Uh, when Reagan won in 1980, they started to implement their tax slash fever. Now, Gingrich led the flip of Congress in 94, and it kind of showed that the politics of personal destruction was a winner for them. Right. Then the Tea Party started to take over the Republican Party in 2010 and showed that, again, that people who worked for a living could be convinced that their interests matched those of the idle rich. Uh, so what we've seen now is a combination of all of that. Whatever the Republican Party says or does, they don't really care about abortion. They don't care about states' rights. They don't care about our troops. Everything the GOP does fits into one of two frames. How can the wealthy spend less on society? And how can money be moved from workers and producers to wealthy takers? Uh, And this tax bill is just such a great example of that. It takes billions and billions of dollars from workers who actually produce for the economy and gives it to a small subset of people who have so much money that they don't have to work, their children don't have to work, and so on down the line. And it's one more step in locking in that permanent state of our economy. Basically, you know, Republicans have convinced people that anyone can be one of the 100 wealthiest Americans. And that may be true, but only a hundred of us can. So right now, what we're seeing is the end game with combination of moving all the money to the wealthy and politics of personal destruction. They see that it worked for Trump and they just fell right in line. And what Trump is doing is not 5% different from what any of the 16 other Republicans up there on their debate stages 
would have been doing at this point. Right now, you know, they feel that the end of their scam is near and they're frantically grabbing as much as they can. They're basically stripping the country of the copper wiring that's remaining <laughs> in the walls right now. And no, no one is going to stop them if the people don't. Well, okay, since you mentioned that, um, you know, as, as Mark Twain once said, uh, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. This very much has a late 1890s Gilded Age feel. It also feels like the days that started with Harding in the 20s and then ultimately fell apart under Hoover. And then, of course, after that, we had uh, four successive terms of FDR and one of the biggest overhauls of our uh, distribution of wealth going in the other direction. Dare I say, do we see uh, some sort of correction like that coming in the future uh, in your mind, Josh? Well, there is always hope. Um, what <laughs> I would note between you know then and now is people are in general not feeling as poor as they were in the uh, early 1930s and that there are more disposable creature comforts but there's still the same shift of all our resources and our work up to the top percent of the economy um we went through a lot in 2008 2009 and that would have been a good opportunity to fix things but i think that we were too timid at the time and worried about making sure that banks stayed whole instead of you know bailing out more mortgage holders and that is leading to yet another just economic uh, bubble now and we see banks going back to their old practices running derivatives um, i put all my money in a credit union several years ago because mm. they don't do that stuff and they were all healthy during the last crash. And all I can hope is that when the bill for this tax plan comes due, and it certainly will come due, uh, that we will be able to implement you know, a fairer society and that Democrats will actually say what they want to accomplish and how it will help people instead of just relying on being better than Trump. Yeah. Because that's not a very high bar. Well, uh, unfortunately, I feel like your words are essentially saying that things are going to get worse before they get better, but uh, ultimately they're going to get better. So we'll just hang on to that. All right. So, and one more drum roll. Chris, your number one is, of course, the birth of the Indivisible Movement, which is actually why we are all here speaking into microphones on this podcast. Uh, it has been one of the guiding forces of my life for the last 11 months. Uh, talk about its impact. Uh, we've had a massive impact. <laughs> I mean, it's it's incredible what's happened. Um, and I'm so thankful for it. Um, it is a progressive movement grounded in the principles of inclusion and unified in our opposition of Trump and his hateful agenda. That's it. It's not Democratic. It's not Republican. It is opposition to Trump um, in every way. And um, it. it I think people have heard, you know, my story of how I heard Ezra Levin, who is one of the co 
executive directors of Indivisible on Rachel Maddow one day, um, January 3rd of this year. And I decided right then and there to start a group, um, you know, like if not me, when, or, or if not me, who, if not now, when mm-hmm. kind of a, a moment for me. And, um, and so it began, um, there's, our group is one of 6,000 groups in, organized in every congressional district in the U.S. And I think one of the true um, successful components of it is that we're partnering with existing efforts, existing um, organizations that have already been doing this work um, so as not to you know, reinvent the wheel. We're partnering with Move On, NAACP, Planned Parenthood, many, many others, um, and it's been great. The thing that probably most people don't realize is that while a lot of the tactics have have been based on what the Tea Party did in Obama years, the Tea Party only had a fraction of the successes we have had even in the first year. And so that's super important context to to keep in mind. Uh, We're a community. We're a force to be reckoned with. And we're coming for you, Trump and the GOP. That's all I got to say. Yep, 2018 is coming. All right, you guys. So uh, before we go, I want to say something that I said on my weekly podcast, which is I I want to thank everybody out there for listening. uh, And thanks to all of you who are part of the Indivisible Movement for all of the hard work that you have done and will do uh, in in the coming year. Uh, But I also want to say a special thanks to each of you, Josh and Chris. Uh, You are both just forces of nature. You guys are incredible. Uh, So thank you both to everything for everything that you do. And thank you, Stefan and Chris and Aaron as well. And God bless the United Shish, as Trump would say. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Stefan. Thank you, everyone who's listening and doing. And uh, I just wish everyone happy holidays and please uh, rest and recharge uh, over this break. Absolutely. Yeah. Do that self-care thing that uh, that we hear so much about. All right. That'll do it for this week in review and this year in review for December 22nd, 2017. As always, if you would like more information about our show, head over to indivisiblepodcast.com. Org and uh, subscribe while you're there. The email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. The executive producer is the amazing Aaron Albanese. Aaron, thank you. Thank you so yes. much. Thank you, Chris Petzold. Thank you. Thank you, Josh Troopin. Thank you, Stefan. And thanks as always to you for listening, and we'll see you guys next year. Bye.